This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a ministry-focused insurance provider serving Christian churches, schools, and related ministries. For more information, visit brotherhoodmutual.com. Last week, Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas announced plans for the city's reopening. Churches are among the institutions that will be allowed to open this month, with one caveat. Any business or establishment that allows people to stay for more than 10 minutes must require that attendees or customers sign a sheet with all their contact information to allow contact tracers to be in touch with them if there's later a COVID-19 outbreak at this establishment. Informing people that they've been exposed to the novel coronavirus is one of the key components of contact tracing. The conservative Christian law firm, Liberty Council, compared Kansas City's actions with Nazi Germany. I'm going to read from this. The Germans did this very thing to Jews, collecting the names and locations of all known synagogue attendees in the early days of the Nazi regime. Founder and chairman Matt Staver wrote in a fundraising appeal, Never in our wildest dreams could we have imagined Nazi-like measures designed to surveil, track, and spy upon what was once a free American people. Yet this is exactly what Kansas City's misguided government officials are now demanding. A number of pastors and churches have argued against measures taken by state and local governments as infringements on their religious liberty. We wanted to discuss if contact tracing will spark the next battle and also get a larger sense of how COVID-19 will change the shape of religious liberty fights. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. Ted, I think this is a great topic to do a gut check on. So tell me what you think about Kansas City's proposal. Yeah, you know, we've been covering some of the church-state religious freedom aspects, some of the COVID-19 news for a few months now, and they're pretty interesting. I was interested a few weeks ago to see Liberty Council kind of taking a, a very strong stance toward kind of ending the state rules on lockdowns, especially for churches, really having this campaign to get churches back meeting in person. That was a bit of a surprise because, you know, a lot of the pastors we've been talking to are, are more in the mode of, of saying, you know, this is really hard, but they, they're not necessarily in a massive rush to, to get back uh, before maybe get people sick. Was interested to, so, so I've been watching what Liberty Council has been talking about. This new rule, what they call the 10-10-10 thing in Kansas City, where I think it's gatherings of, of 10 people for 10 minutes. I forget what the third 10 is. You remember, it's, I think it's... Uh, 10% sometimes of a particular business. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, it's like, yeah, 10% of the building occupancy or 10 people for more than 10 minutes, I think. Then you have to record all the names and contact information in case there's a in case there's an exposure. But regardless, you have to kind of you know keep those names on file. When I saw the press release, it did seem a little over the top since I have an aversion to Nazi references. But I, you know, I must admit that the, that the idea of keeping tenants for the government makes me a little uneasy. So that's why I said, hey, Morgan, let's talk, let's talk about this this week. because. I'm still processing it. I want to keep people safe. I want, to, I think contact tracing sounds like a great idea, but also, you know, I know that crises can be 
manufactured and I'm not eager to start a precedent where like in times of crisis, the government's tracking who's attending what churches. So yeah, that's that's my gut. How about, how about you, Morgan? Last week, the New York Times had their editorial board release this op-ed called We the People in Order to Defeat the Coronavirus. And they wrote this, civil liberties may feel to some like a second order problem when thousands of Americans are dying of a disease with no known treatment or vaccine. Yet while unprecedented emergencies may demand unprecedented responses, those responses could easily tip into misuse and abuse or become part of our daily lives even after the immediate threat has passed. I thought that this was an interesting piece from the New York Times in the sense that they maybe took some of the rationale that we've seen more from conservative figures and the New York Times editorial board does not have a strong reputation of being conservative. It did make me think that this maybe is just a very American thing to kind of look at acts by the government really kind of, you know, wrinkle your nose and scrunch it up and ask, how is this actually going to play out and what's going to be the root, you know, what what is actually going to end up happening to this? And so I think it's always really interesting that we have this kind of like think with the end in mind approach when it comes to these new policies. Clearly, it feels very benign in terms of its intent with this thing. And to me, it makes a lot of sense, especially if churches are allowed to reopen and we know that many people come to them. But I'm really thankful that people do end up thinking a little bit further than just what the intended or purported use of a policy is when it's said by the government. Ted, who is our guest today to chime in about this discussion we're having? One of the people that I would be most eager to talk to about this. Today, we're talking to Russell Moore, a very familiar name to Christianity Today readers. Uh, He's president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. His latest book is due out in October. It will be called The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. And I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Moore. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be with you. It is great to have you as well. All right. So, Dr. Moore, a number of church leaders and Christian organizations have expressed suspicion and hostility at local and state government, pandemic-related curtailments, shutdowns, lockdowns, and so forth. To what extent are you surprised by these reactions? Well, to tell you the truth, what I'm surprised by is the fact that we have not had more of a conflagration when it comes to church-state sorts of disputes during the the pandemic. And we really haven't. We've had some really high-profile mishandlings in some areas that have taken place from the state side. And we've had some really irresponsible and egregious things that have happened in church life. But those have been outliers, uh, usually, in terms of what's going on in most places. So it kind of drives me crazy when I see on television, for instance, some prosperity gospel evangelist who's saying uh, we can just blow the coronavirus away and everybody can gather here, and that being presented as though that's the mainstream of what's happening in Christianity in Christian life in America, which is not the case. Or when you have some really ham-handed sorts of attempts by some governments in a way where most people assume that's really what's happening across the country. When in most cases, what I'm shocked by is the fact that churches aren't sort of begrudging participants in protecting their communities. In most cases, they were actually in front of the government, ahead of the government when it comes to protecting their their people. And in most cases, what I'm hearing from all the time are governors, mayors, and, and others, including people who have no constituencies, really, among evangelical Christians or, or churchgoers, really, at all, who are saying, how can we communicate better to churchgoers? How can we cooperate? How can we get help? 
from them. That's really the most surprising thing that I've seen in this. I, I really, when this all began, I thought we are going to have, with just the simmering level of culture war that we have on both sides, that's going to explode right now. And I'm really surprised that for the most part, that has not happened. Dr. Moore, when you're saying you're surprised, I'm wondering if there's also any historical precedent, too, that also makes you surprised, given maybe how churches have responded to other government overtures in the past. Well, we don't really have a a one-to-one historical comparison when it comes to this sort of thing. When you've got this combination of public health threat and economic collapse in a global economy the way that we have it, we just don't really have that. Looking at, for instance, the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, it just was a very different reality in in terms of people's lives than it would be in this sort of hyper-connected, globalized world and in a world where the government has a very different role than it had in 1918. So we just don't know. And that's, that's most of what I'm saying to churches. When we had the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, there was at least a template where we could say, look, this is how the the church responded to the Great Depression, how the church responded to other economic disruptions. This is different. I mean, we, we just haven't had this situation where across most of the country, churches are not only not able to meet, but not able to meet with, in most cases, no firm end in sight, having to carry out as best they can ministries using technological resources. We just don't have a a comparison. The easiest comparison that I can make when it comes to some of the issues that you're raising in terms of contact tracing and so forth would be September the 11th. And the reason that I would say that that's a good comparison is because it was really good after September the 11th that you had both the government and most of American culture saying, we have to defeat this, we have to take this seriously. It was also good that you had some strong voices of dissent coming in and saying, wait a minute, what's that going to mean if you're surveilling people's cell phone records without a warrant? What is that going to mean after this immediate crisis is over? Or if you're talking about listening in on mosque services, what is that going to mean for church-state relations and religious liberty and, and civil liberties and individual liberty? It was good that you had those voices of dissent. Otherwise, the, the immediate reaction would have been, we have to do whatever it takes to defeat this in a way that could have had unintended consequences. So that's that's probably the best historical parallel that I can think of right now. What is your take on the kind of contract tracing rules out in, out in Kansas City? I think Kansas City mishandled this because I, I do think that there's a need for extensive testing. There's going to be a need for extensive contact tracing, but contact tracing is going to have to be introduced in a way that is technologically sound and and people are familiar with exactly what's taking place, but it also has to be culturally communicated in a way where people understand it and get it, and in a way that's not going to have unintended implications when it comes to church-state relations. Coming into a city and simply announcing the writing down of the names of people who have attended worship services, I, I have really almost no doubt that this was taking place due to very well-intentioned people who are saying, how do we keep keep this from spreading? But there's a reason why 
that raises the, the, the sense of alarm in all kinds of people and not just the sort of conspiracy theory propagating sorts of people who are com- complaining about having to wear masks in the grocery store. It, most people would have a sense of, wait a minute, what? And, and that's especially true when you have had reasons for tension in recent years when it comes to issues of religious liberty, really across the board. I think that was that was just not handled well at all. And Kansas City should should rethink the way that they're they're doing this. And then when you look at some of the other situations around the country, one of the problems is churches have to be treated in terms of a public health issue. Churches cannot be treated in a way that penalizes them as opposed to any other gathering of people. There is a legitimate government interest in saying we can't have mass numbers of people gathering together. That has implications for everybody in terms of life and death potentialities. We see what happens, for instance, in one funeral in Georgia. Not the fault of the people involved. They didn't know what was happening at the time, and none of us really knew where this was going, but how that can then go out to, to everyone else. But when you come in and say you can't have a drive-in Easter service that meets all of the social distancing regulations and rules. Or when you say something like, we're going to come and take down your license plate numbers. I mean, that's a stupid thing to do. Even if you're not, as some of these governments say, oh, well, we were just going to, we weren't going to do anything to people. We were just going to send them some helpful recommendations uh, for for (laughs) keeping track of their, their health. Well, there's a reason why that feels authoritarian and and feels problematic. I I think governments have to, even when they're well-intentioned, think through what are the implications going to be? How can somebody use this policy I'm putting into place in another time and for another reason? And how am I communicating it? I mean, the same thing, that's not just true in terms of Christians. I was stunned when I saw the Bill de Blasio tweet in which he says, I'm warning the Jewish community. Uh, and I forget <laughs> Can how he Can you give people it. some context for that, Dr. Moore? Because well, that was actually a very interesting case. It, was, the whole it was an interesting case because I can absolutely see why the mayor was concerned and upset. You have a funeral. It has a, a, a apparently a large group of people gathered very close together. That is a problem and that is a public health problem. But how do you address it? You don't address it by yelling at the mourners who are there. That's not going to solve the problem. And you certainly don't address it by putting out tweets that say, I'm warning the Jewish community when you don't (laughs) understand the sort of historical context that is here with a religious minority who, who have faced state persecution in the most awful ways. Why would you why would you communicate uh, this way when instead what you could have done is to contact the particular Hasidic community involved and talk about ways that this actually should be done and then speak to the general uh, community? Hey, public health uh, situation doesn't end with funerals. That's true. I'm in a situation right now. My grandmother just died and uh, we can't go to the funeral because it has to be less than. 10 people. So I'm just sort of waiting for a report back from the designated people who can go. That's real. I mean, uh, uh, there's a real reason to be concerned about that. But you shouldn't use the sort of language, especially when people's nerves are already frayed, people are already rightfully scared, that gives the impression of authoritarianism, even if all you want to communicate is your 
sort of swagger and, and trying to, to intimidate people. That's just the wrong way to go with this stuff. I'm curious about how to communicate to the, you know, you, you say a lot of this is about communication. As you know, you know, a lot of the uh, religious freedom rules are, they're simple in one sense, but they're really tricky in some of the details, especially when you get down to some of the state rules where some states have these religious freedom rules that have, that have higher barriers and some of them. I mean, to massively oversimplify, there are a lot of cases where there's kind of this general rule of if you have a broadly applicable you know, rule, it is okay for that rule to, to apply to churches and religious organizations. But then there's a number of places where that is maybe not the case, where there's kind of a higher bar to apply those to religious institutions. I'm kind of interested in, if you're kind of talking to to pastors who <laughs> are like, hey, should we, you know, the, the state just made this rule you know, we weren't really planning to meet, but we don't know if we should be opposing this kind of on principle and kind of defending our, our right to meet as a church. What's a good thing to communicate to to pastors and to churches about the church's place in, in some of these rules, wanting to make sure that, that we don't kind of surrender principle, even if we may not kind of take advantage of the principle in a, in a given case. The standard that you're talking about is uh, at the federal level, the Supreme Court handed down what, what I believe was a really bad decision in the Smith case that said, as, as you mentioned, as long as a law is, is applicable to everybody and it doesn't single out a religion, then it's constitutionally okay. I mean, that that's really a has has huge problems, and it was it was resolved at the federal level with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, but that doesn't apply to the states. So some states uh, have passed uh, what we call RIFRAs, Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, and and others have not. But even then, I spend a lot of my time when I'm talking to secular people who don't really know a lot of religious people and who haven't spent a lot of time in this, who assume that religious freedom means. As long as you have your, your name in a Bible somewhere, that means you get to do anything. I, I'll often deal with the caricature of, oh, so you're saying that people ought to not have to give their kids measles vaccines and send them into public schools and infect everybody with measles. No, that's not what religious freedom means. And it's not what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act says. What it says is that the government has to show that there's a compelling reason why religious freedom is being restricted and that the government is using the least restrictive means to get to that objective. So the government has a has a, an interest in saying we're not going to allow human sacrifices in the state of Tennessee. Doesn't matter if your you know, your first church of, of Asherah worship demands it. You can't do that. There's a compelling reason why you can't do it. And so there are all sorts of, of areas where the government does have a legitimate role. And then there are going to be a lot of gray areas where we're, we're trying to figure out where what are the, the interests here and how are they being worked out. So if you're in a situation where you have a government that is putting into place legitimate restrictions in terms of public assembly that apply to everybody, they're not singling out churches, and they're understanding the unique aspect of religious assembly and the, the need for worship, seeking to make accommodation for that where it's possible, then that's a very different scenario where you have a government that may say, we don't, we're not going to mind if you're gathered together at the Home Depot, but you can't gather together at First 
First Methodist Church. I mean, that, that, those those are two very different sorts of scenarios. And and sometimes what that's going to take, I think, in most cases, some of these issues are going to take going to court and having these issues resolved. But in a lot of the cases, what I've counseled people to do at the local level, where they're saying, wait a minute, we've got this rule that comes down, is to say, have you called your your mayor or, or your city councilman? And in a lot of those cases, when they call the city councilman or the mayor or the county supervisor says, you know what, we didn't think about that. We're going to rectify it. And so you didn't have sort of a proper investigation and communication from the government and the church can rectify that. In, in a lot of cases, that's all that it takes. But in some of them, it's going to take going to court. And as we have seen before in American history, I really do expect we probably will have a really important and high profile incursion here in one direction or the other that's going to end up going to court. We have seen that before. So you, you think of, for instance, after World War II, the, the onset of the Cold War issues of Jehovah's Witnesses and pledge, uh, pledging allegiance to the flag or some of the, the huge issues that came up in terms of civil liberties related to internment in World War II or, or then some of the other things that came along with the war on terror. We probably will have that in, in terms of uh, court cases, but we have to make sure on both ends that we're rightly understanding what's going on. A, a government shouldn't say when congregations are asking can we find proper ways, socially distanced, of meeting in areas where our states are ready for that? That's not insurrection against the state to be asking those questions. And a state that says, hey, everybody, we don't want to kill our neighbors by increasing the curve on this is not a state that's necessarily trying to crack down on worship. We have to understand that and, and call out these violations when they're really there. And even when they're not, to warn about, hey, wait a minute, this may be a legitimate thing that you're doing in this case, but we want to make sure that we understand that it shouldn't go any further than it's going here. That, <laughs> that has to happen. Uh, right. and, and those things have to be talked about in the moment and not just later on. Yeah, it's interesting that the two things the governments are really weighing right now, you know, one of them is, you know, what are these churches? You know, that these governments are having to make a lot of distinctions between what is what is essential or what is, you know, kind of I think one of the phrases core core to life, you know, those kinds of things. And, and you know, actually I think an example of doing things well has been the the CDC. Centers for Disease Control, which was not handing down dictates, really, in terms of churches. But when they're talking about churches in areas of states that are reopening or in preparing churches for states that reopen, put through a list of suggestions in terms of how to do this safely. And I remember before these the suggestions came out, there were a lot of people saying, is the CDC going to come in and demand that we, we do things in a particular way in terms of our liturgy? That's not what happened, at least not so far. But also there were a lot of people who said, well, these are really vague and they're not specific. I said, well, they, they have to be vague because this isn't, uh, we, we don't want Big Brother telling you what your order of worship needs to look like on, on Sunday. And even if they wanted to, and even if that were the right thing to do, uh, they wouldn't be able to do it when church services are so radically different. Th saying something like, don't care hymn books. Well, there are a lot of churches that, that I deal with where the people would say, what's a hymn book? <laughs> and, and vice versa. And so just having suggestions to say, hey, think about choirs and worship teams 
think about the issues of greeting time and, and shake the hand of the visitor time. Think about these things. I think that that has been helpfully communicated in some ways that didn't come across as authoritarian or Caesar trying to meddle in the, the affairs of the state. That in the end, turns out to be not only the right thing to do, but more effective. Yeah, it is interesting to see these uh, governments. And, and one of the things I've noticed in the courts is is kind of this, not only they have to wrestle with nature of the churches, they have to na- wrestle with like what what is, what is a church, but in some cases they have to wrestle with, with doctrine. I'm curious, you know, one thing I've noticed is that the courts are making a lot of you know, Bible references in their rulings about church closures. So you, you just mentioned Caesar, which made me think about that one, that Sixth Circuit block Kentucky. Kentucky had some rules about drive-in church, drive-in church services. And the court kind of threw out those rules and said, you know, this breadth of the ban on religious services is troubling. It should give anyone pause, especially since there's uh, this fairly large haven for, for a lot of secular, there's a lot of secular exemptions. So it should give pause to anyone who re- who prizes religious freedom. But the, the quote that struck me. It's, it's not always easy to decide what is Caesar's and what is God's. And that's assuredly true in the context of a pandemic. I thought that was interesting to see the, the court wrestle with that. The other one was here in Illinois, uh, Illinois Federal District Court, when it upheld the Illinois rule barring gatherings of more than 10 people. It said, this is a quote, until testing data signals that it is safe to engage more fully in exercising our spiritual beliefs, whatever that they might be, plaintiffs as Christians can take comfort in the promise of Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. So I thought that was kind of interesting to say, look, we will let you gather where two or three will let you gather up even up to 10. And then the rest of the rest of the folks have to have to join by video. I thought it was interesting to have the court kind of making that argument from Jesus. I'm like, oh, that's another one of those things that makes me slightly uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. I, I, I'm curious about how you view those references. Are they kind of cultural references to cultural idioms? Or are they indications that scripture still has something to say in legal judgment? Or is this like a secular state being like, you know, maybe maybe don't quote Jesus to justify your your decision here? Yeah, I think you probably need a clerk to say to you, hey, I don't really think you should include that uh, in the ruling where two or three are gathered together because it's sort of uh, similar to you know, secular people who will who will say, well, Jesus says, judge not lest you judge. So how can you talk about my serial killing or, or whatever? Right. Uh, you're just like, Come on, that's not what this means. And you're actually, you're not helping your argument with that. I think there's a certain place where you have to engage with, where these secular courts have to engage with biblical texts or, or, or other uh, aspects of doctrine in terms of understanding what they're accommodating or not accommodating. For instance, I have heard people say things like, well, you know, you don't have to gather because you can get everything that you would get there online and you can just do communion digitally all alone in your houses. What I do when I hear that is bang my head against the wall here in my lair to say you don't understand what Christian communion is and what it means to gather. And my Catholic friends really do. And, and, and those who are of higher higher sacramental uh, churches than, than I am. Well, I mean, we, we had to deal with this, for instance, with chaplaincy, where at one point there was a suggestion, well, you ought to give communion to whoever shows up, and it's just bread and wine. Catholic chaplain had to say, well, if it's just bread and wine, then I'm not a Catholic anymore. In that sort of court case, you do have to come in and say, here's what Roman Catholicism believes about this, and here's what so I think to some degree that has to happen, but this kind of cute 
referencing of scriptures, it, it, the Illinois case almost feels like patting Christians on the head and saying, come on, just listen to Jesus here and behave. That's not really <laughs> helpful, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So we're about to enter a very unique month where across the 50 states, there are going to be a, a variety of policies in procedures that local governments are asking for churches that might be reopening. And of course, there are still plenty of states where that is not even a possibility during the month of May. And Dr. Moore, I'm just curious, how might you suggest church leaders seek wisdom and guidance during this time, especially knowing that we're going to have so much divergence with regards to what local policy looks like? A couple things. One of those things that I've been saying all along, keep in close contact with your local officials, your local uh, public health officials and and other governing authorities. And uh, what I've said to a lot of churches is there's sometimes churches who think they don't want to hear from us. They don't want, and that is not the case. They really are, in most cases, wanting this kind of back and forth communication, and it's healthy and good for everybody in the community. I would also say, just because your state has, for instance, reopened, doesn't mean that that your church necessarily should reopen. What it means is you have to say, how can we do this in a way that is going to be safe? And that means that right now, while a lot of churches are not meeting, this is actually the time to get together and to be working through how will we know in our situation when it is safe to open 
And how can we make sure once we do that we're not going to uh, contribute to the problem or even worse? I mean, right now it's frustrating not to be able to meet. It's frustrating to do Zoom small group community. I mean, everybody is frustrated by that and rightfully so. But it would be worse if you say this is over, we're all back together, and then you have to disperse again. Because what's going to happen then is you're going to communicate to people, this is even more uncertain than it already is. And so use this time to come in and say, how can we make a good discernment about this? And then what can we do? Which means a lot of what I'm saying right now is similar to what Anthony Fauci and and Scott Gottlieb have been saying about the economy, which is to say, if you're thinking this is like a light switch, it's not. Uh, one of them used the, the analogy of a dimmer switch that's sort of slowly going on. That's certainly true in terms of church life. So it's not going to be the case where this Sunday we're all doing our live streaming services and the next Sunday we're right back to exactly the way that we were with everybody there and we're hugging each other during the I'm so glad I'm a part of a family of God sing a long time. That's not going to happen right away. Instead, you're probably for even when you do reopen, you're probably going to have for a time and maybe for a long time, a sort of hybrid where everything that's taking place right now in terms of live streaming and reaching people that way will continue to go on for the people who are there and for the people that you have to stagger. With the social distancing requirements that are here right now without therapeutics and without a pandemic, if my church were to decide this coming Sunday, we're going to reopen, but we're going to reopen with proper social distancing, what they would have to do is almost assign people, have people sign up in terms of what service they're going to attend and how they're going to attend it. And so you're you're going to have some churches that maybe don't have multiple services now and never have who might have to now. And then uh, all sorts of other things like, I think we're going to have a resurgence of the need for ushers in evangelical church life, even in in churches that don't remember what ushers are and haven't seen them in a long time, because you don't want people coming in and opening doors and, and infecting others. We're probably not going to see, you know, and for those of us who are kind of on the inside cranky introverts, this might be a good thing, but you, you don't want, you're, you're probably not going to have the turn around and greet three people and tell them, glad to see you. That's probably not going to happen. It may never come back. And then all sorts of of other things in terms of, as the CDC pointed out, in terms of restrooms. I mean, you can kind of monitor how far people are apart in terms of the sanctuary, but you have to make sure that you're, you're not having multiple people going into a restroom at one time. So there are all sorts of things to be thought through the logistics, and we're going to get some of them wrong, just like with everything else. And we're going to learn as we go. But now's the time to start thinking through what that looks like and to realize, to give people the reasonable expectation that we're going to be, in in many ways, easing into this. And so a, a lot of people, even when we're reopened, a lot of people with comorbidity factors or elderly populations still won't be there. And they're still going to need all of the technological ways that we can reach them, which might turn out to be, if we, if we look at the gifts that that come out of this horrible, awful time, it, that might be one of them, is that we have a reawakening of understanding shut-ins in our congregations in a way that, that maybe we didn't before. It was interesting, Dr. Moore, when you brought up that sign-up situation, because I know at least one congregation in South Korea 
asked congregants to sign up beforehand. So some churches at least are already doing that as they're trying to reopen. You know, in in states that are going to be allowing churches to reopen, I was just thinking that church leaders are really going to have to just juggle this sense of priorities with regards to serving their congregation well, loving the larger community that they live in well, trying to figure out finances. And then as we've been talking about on this you know, religious freedom issues and kind of ensuring that their religious freedom is not being denied. I'm curious, where do you kind of get a sense of a hierarchy of how things should go, especially with regards to trying to serve a congregation who might just feel very eager and spiritually malnourished, not being able to be with other community members, while also trying to be a good neighbor to the town or city that they're in? Well, I think most people are getting it right. I I really do. And, And I've been surprised by that. Because I really anticipated that I was going to have to spend a lot of my time explaining to people why you can't just Lysol down the front of the church and, and everybody can show back up as, as normal. That has not happened. I mean, it, it really has not happened, even though churches are probably hit the hardest right now, not just in terms of the intangible spiritual realities, but also simply in terms of we're people who gather together, who carry out ministry together, ministry that the community needs, maybe now more than ever, that largely can't happen or or, or has to happen in in very different ways and and in financial terms. Disastrous. It is really, really difficult for churches. And you have churches, especially smaller churches. I've started every Sunday before I live stream my own church. I live stream my home church, smaller church in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, that has never done live streaming of any sort before, ever. Uh, I don't think anybody's ever even thought about doing that sort of thing. They don't have online giving. They had to, to sort of on the fly come up with this to enable people to find out how to, to give and to tithe. And there's something really, I was watching it this Sunday and the pastor was saying for like 10 minutes, am I on? Can everybody hear me? We're having some technical difficulties. There was something really kind of sweet about that. Like, this, is, this is an authentic community trying to do the best they can in this. It's really hurting, hitting churches hard, but churches for the most part, have probably been among the best uh, of people in the country at saying we're going to do what it takes. I think the situation as it is now in terms of the the heart affection of local congregations and pastors and others, we just need to continue that. And we need to continue that in places where we're continuing to be on lockdown. And we need to be ready to continue that same sort of attitude when we're back reopened. And I And just like anybody else, it's easy to become sort of cynical when you see a lot of crazy or immoral or or, or things that go on in religious institutions. We've all seen that in every communion in recent years. Then you turn around and you see sort of the ways that churches are responding in really Christ-like ways. I mean, it, it ought to cause us to say, to emphasize that and to, and to have a sense of gratitude for it. I am wondering, back to some of the church-state relationships, if, if there's an opportunity for better relationships with between churches and their kind of local governments or even state governments, I guess. There's one sense I, I hesitate to ask that question because 
you know, it's, it's that issue of like, hey, it's COVID-19 isolation. And, you know, now we're all going to be extremely productive and do all those things we should have been doing all along. I'm going to go finish my novel. It's like the equivalent of, oh, I'm going to go finish my novel now that I'm now that I'm stuck at home, which, of course, no one's doing in reality. And, and I'm sure that, you know, and, and at a place like Christianity Today, you know, we've had a million pitches that are like, hey, now that we're all stuck or now that our churches have to do this, now we can do those things we always meant to do. But I am wondering on a, on a realistic kind of actually attainable thing as churches and governments are kind of asking some of the same questions about literally saving people. Have you seen churches doing doing anything or is there kind of like a small attainable thing we can do to work with our governments, to work with our communities, to be helpful and, and, and safe that would, that would not run afoul of you know, church state problems? I completely think that's the case. And I, I, I have seen that happening in multiple uh, places. I mean, one of the first things that happened after after this really started rolling in a major way was I got a call from a mayor of a big blue city, very secular population there, who was saying, can you put me into contact with churches that can help me? I have a homeless population infected with COVID, that I have to find a, a way to care for them? Are, are there churches that I can be in contact with? In, in similar ways, where similar sorts of officials saying, can you put me into contact with churches where I can find out how not to make a mistake here with church state? Because they, they had the self-awareness of saying, I know, I don't know enough about this stuff, and I'm liable to to do something that's going to end up having completely unintentional church state sorts of problems. That that sort of thing is is happening and ought to happen. And the same thing from the other direction where you have you have churches who are in contact. I mean and, and I've seen that a lot in in small rural areas, especially where sometimes the local officials that you have are also they're elected to positions that are very part-time. They're having to work jobs, uh, normal uh, jobs, and they're trying to figure all of this out on, on the fly, having pastors to call in. And the pastors usually know more what's going on in terms of the community than the elected officials do, because they're the ones who, who are called to the hospital first. They're, they're involved in that. So that's a good moment to start to, to build a relationship that, that can be good for everybody, really, in the long run. And we've seen the same sorts of things when it comes to Hospital chaplaincy, for instance, it's a really tough time with hospital chaplaincy and having local governments to realize one of the worst parts about coronavirus is that people are not just dying, but they're dying alone. And so how do we get chaplaincy services to people who really need them in places that maybe previously would have just seen that as being sort of a, an extraneous thing? And they're realizing how how really important this is now. That's something that I think can be good for all of us in the long run. I'm glad that you mentioned, Dr. Mora, the fact that churches and elected officials can work together. I think there was a good example of that in episode 207. I'm quick to listen if people want to go back and listen to that. Just to conclude our conversation, I was just wondering if you could give me a sense of how you think the pandemic might kind of affect and redraw some of these religious liberty battles here in the U.S. We don't yet know exactly what this is going to look like because we don't have an understanding of what, for one thing, how long this is going to last in terms of without 
effective therapeutics without a vaccine. We also don't know what what will be the government and government's plans when it comes to things like contact tracing. We need it. We need testing. We need contact tracing. But we can see the way that some of those things can be horrifically abused. Look at the way that China is using technology. And I'm not in any way equating our government or any potential future government with the Chinese Communist Party. But you can see how technology can be used in ways that are harmful to everybody. And you can see the way. And again, I'm not seeing this really in in our North American context, but it could where you have a sense of don't waste a crisis mentality that can use disease in in some really awful ways. I mean, we've seen that even with some of the nativist movements uh, that have taken place against uh, immigrant populations have often done that by saying they spread disease even when they're not. And so that could happen in terms of religious people. So you could have a conflagration that takes place. I think what we have to have is at every step of the way, we as Christians and as Americans need to have these two competing uh, or, or not competing, but balancing influences, Romans 13 and Revelation 13 in our minds. The government has a legitimate role in order and authority, and we need to be the best citizens that we can possibly be, Romans 13. And Revelation 13, it is possible for a government to overstep its bounds and to become a destructive force. And so you need to have both of those conversations going all the while, even when everything's good to say, we're not going to be the people who are out in the street trying to be insurrectionists and, and denying the, the, the need for, for order and the legitimate power of the sword. That's not the way of Christ. And we're not going to be the people who say, because we're afraid, that means that the government can do anything going forward. So we have to keep those, both of those conversations going at the same time, knowing that there are always going to be people who will want to take one of those things and make them absolute to the expense of the other. That damages our, our witness and, and the safety of the community. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Moore, for chiming in on this discussion. I probably should oversee it more than just chiming in, giving us all this wisdom and insight and ideas about how to think about all of this stuff. For people who have questions, comment, feedback, send us an email. We're at podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak where we get a chance to hear from our listeners. The first letter that I wanted to read is from Brian Boltima, who is in Peru. He said this, Your two most recent episodes on Quick to Listen have waded back into topics that I would consider pressing and, pardon my buzzword, relevant for modern evangelicals. Prior to this, it seemed many episodes were delving into obscure topics, or at least topics of a very niche interest. However, David French's interview finally honestly and civilly broached what seems to be the elephant in the room in recent years, how continuous evangelical support of Trump damages our ability to be light in the world. Lastly, this past week's episode on addressing the discomfort many Christians have with the harmony of science and faith was a wonderfully nuanced conversation. This topic has and continues to divide Christians. Thanks again for these recent episodes. Thank you for writing, Brian. Our recent slow to speak actually elicited a number of letters, one of them from Lanry Ajibula. 
Hi, CT. I've been a listener for a few years now. I appreciate your thoughtful approach to contemporary issues, especially the fact that your guests tend to be experts in the fields being discussed. Regarding the responses to your recent episode with David French, I want to offer a rebuttal to the critics who implied you were picking sides. I humbly disagree. Mr. French's points were founded in defending the integrity of faithful Christian political witness. In general, we Christians must avoid the temptation to choose political sides. When we do so, our faith becomes corrupted by partisan loyalties instead of loyalty to Jesus. I want to express my gratitude to your publication for offering a faithful and consistent example of Christianity in a world of hypocrisy. Thank you, Lanry. All right. The last letter is definitely one of the most memorable that we've gotten, as you will see. And it is from Clayton Seidenbender. Dear CT Quick to Listen team, I have been an off and on listener of the podcast for a couple of years now. I am also a college student subscriber to the magazine. I know not very many people my age subscribe to any print content, so I hope the news that I'm a college student comes as a nice surprise. While I'm not surprised people were upset by your decision to have David French on the podcast, I am dumbfounded as to why some people think CT has become too political. One article and one podcast episode does not make a magazine more political in its coverage. In CT's defense, 95% of the magazine and the website content is apolitical. I thought the French episode of the podcast was fantastic, and the two hosts did a fine job at remaining neutral throughout their conversation with him. I commend Morgan Lee for her great work as the longtime host of this podcast. She always sounds annoyed while speaking into the mic, but I know the way a person's voice sounds over the airwaves does not reflect how they're actually feeling in the moment. She's a delight, and I cannot imagine anyone else as the host of Quick to Listen. Thank you, Clay, for the opportunity to laugh for 10 minutes after I got that email, which is true. I laughed for 10 minutes. It was amazingly framed. That paragraph is definitely one of my favorites that I have gotten at any time regarding feedback from the show in the four years that I've done that. <laughs> we, we will all listen for the annoyance in your voice. Whenever yes, you gut check, Ted. Do I sound annoyed? You've known me for a long time. You know, be honest. You're, we're not in the same room right now, so you can't see my nonverbals. Have I been coming across... <laughs> You know, really like stealth. Morgan, I have years of experience with you, and 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 I know when you are annoyed. I know very well when you are annoyed. And being on quick to listen, rarely are you truly annoyed. I don't think you sound annoyed, but hey, it's good. It's good feedback. I think it's it's great. It is good feedback, and it's nice to have someone who has listened over the years to relay that feedback. Maybe I should practice more smiling when I say words. I've heard that that does actually make a difference, and people maybe, can hear you smile. <laughs> maybe maybe you just sound annoyed to Gen Z. You never know. All all these college all these college listeners think you're think you're annoyed, but it's but just, shout out it's to just your millennial. It's just your millennial self. Thank you. Just trying to rep my generation really well. Anyway, thank you everyone for all types of feedback, including feedback about how tones of voice communicate across the podcast airwaves. For people who have additional feedback for us, we thought it was hilarious that we got feedback to. The feedback that we had gotten. But if you want to continue that, you can send us an email. We are at podcasts with an S at christianitytoday.com or on Twitter at CT Podcasts. And we should say that we may edit your comments for brevity as we did with these comments today. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy recently. Ted, it is up to you to go first. So my precious moment of the last uh, week was at was my church this last week. My wife gave the sermon. We have a lot of listeners who aren't 
cool with that, but I'm in a church that is. But my wife preached on Psalm 23, and it was phenomenally great. The joy of hearing your spouse say wisdom, and then there's actually the joy of hearing a great sermon that really speaks to your soul. And both of those things combined, they're just about the blessing of God preparing a place for us, pardon me, preparing a, a feast for us in the presence of this enemy of, uh, of COVID-19 and the ways in which that that is true was was really helpful to me. So that was, a, that was a precious moment. Still playing board games with the family. That's always a precious moment. This week, we busted up the old Scrabble. So, you know, we went back to a classic this week and that was fun. And people can follow you on Twitter at Ted Olson. With an E. You got it. All right, Dr. Moore, you're up next. I think the the precious moment for me this week has been the last week of school for my oldest two sons who are high school seniors. And there's a sense of melancholy in that because they won't have a graduation. But just the the sense of this moment, and uh, they were the two that uh, my wife and I adopted when they were a year old in a Russian orphanage. When people said at the time when we came home with them, it will go by so quickly. I thought, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the cliche that everybody says. And now I'm standing here looking at these these young men and saying, man, these people are right. It did go by really, really quickly. Where can people find you outside of this? At DR Moore on uh, Twitter, or you can find me at RussellMoore.com. I'm going to go with something completely out of character for my precious moment, and that is the TV show Never Have I Ever. I (laughs) watched nine and a half out, no, eight and a half out of 10 episodes in one sitting very recently. That is out of character for you. This is, you know, you just got to name something sometimes about how real the quarantine has been. So I am not immune to Netflix's addictive binge watching spell that it casts over people. And I have to say that usually makes me very grateful for not necessarily being into it. But of course, at this point, as we're in week or not week, month two of this all happening, your defenses are a lot lower (laughs) to these things. I have watched more TV than I normally watch, but of course, I barely watch any. So I don't think it's been too much, but I did watch a lot of this particular show up until my smart TV lost connection to the internet. Oh man. That's so the new Mindy Kaling show, is that right? Yes. It honestly feels like a Netflix slash Disney Channel mashup. And I liked watching <laughs> Disney Channel growing up. I'm not gonna say like it's for the same demographic as Disney Channel, just so yeah. people don't hear that recommendation in my voice. But it it has a lot of that. And it's also set in California, which being a California native, I appreciated that much about it. And it's also nice to have someone who's basically a nerd be the star of it and she never really overcomes her nerdum. Anyway, it's an entertaining show. It is not going to make me a wiser person inherently, but it probably has that possibility. So we'll see what happens. But people can follow me at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of quick to listen this podcast is produced by myself and matt linder the transcript is by boon miashola the music is by sweeps if you want to support the show become a subscriber to christianity today magazine and you can do so by going to orderct.com slash podcast you want to also support the show please rate and review the show on apple podcasts that really helps a lot we will see you all next week bye Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive 
transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.